0: Tune in and turn on, it's time for Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2, a company founded in 2001, dedicated to helping clients with their people-related decisions by giving them access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. Well, I think it's time for the show. Let's welcome our host, Chris Dyer.
1: Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. Again, my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour. In case you're tuning in for the first time, the Talent Talk radio show features a wide range of guests who care about talent or are talented themselves. On this show, we talk about talent in those two ways. First, as it relates to success and uncovering the secrets of really talented people. And second, we also talk about talent in relation to human resources and HR leaders and how they find the best candidates today. Hopefully you see how that works. The word talent there has a couple different meanings, and in the business world, we really want to dive into what the, what that means, how do you do it, and that's really what this show looks to explore. My guests include CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR executives from all types of industries. So when I'm out at conferences, networking events, I- industry events, I have the privilege of meeting all sorts of really interesting and inspiring leaders. So I created this forum to allow you to listen in on our dialogue and learn some practical advice that will hopefully help your own career in a positive way. Before I get to my guests today, Jason Cement and Steve, uh, Steve Goldberg, I want to thank those of you who are tuning in live today. Don't forget you can submit your questions to my guests via Twitter. Just tweet your question to at peopleg2 hashtag talent talk. My producer Mike will feed me the best questions and we'll try to work them into the show. If you've missed any of our live shows, you can also listen in via the podcast on iTunes. Just go to iTunes, type in Talent Talk, and you'll be able to find us real easy. If you're already listening to the podcast, thank you. With that said, let's uh, get today's show started. Again, my guests today are Jason Cement and Steve Goldberg, and I'll be talking to Steve in the second half of the show, so let's go ahead and get started. Welcome, Jason. Thank you for being on the show.
2: Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me today. So
1: tell us about yourself and your company, uh, L.A. Design.
2: Uh, That's great. Well, I have an atypical background because I was a CPA for a big firm back in the early uh, 90s, and then I went uh, to law school at Fordham University. And while I was in law school, I didn't do the traditional route of taking the law job, and I actually worked in a business. I worked in Sri Lanka and Hong Kong for a while. And uh, it led me into the internet, and I started a magazine subscription service in 1997, and uh, called Magmall.com, and it's still running. I got funded by an incubator uh, that put 40 million dollars into a bunch of businesses, and I'm the last man standing. Wow! And uh, in about 2003, the guy that built my website sold me his business. So If you remember Victor Kayam when we were kids, the guy who had that shaving company, Remington Microscreen? Mm-hmm. You know, I liked it so much, I bought the company. Right. <laughs> That's what happened to me, and I bought a software company. And we started, uh, we opened an office in Moscow before the word outsourcing even existed. And so we've had an office there for about 10 years, and we have an office in Israel, and we've supplied uh, e-commerce solutions and corporate websites for the last 10 years. And then five years ago, I realized that building websites doesn't have longevity in terms of um, revenues. So we opened up L.A. Design to start offering something that would have an annuity component. So we started doing search optimization and social media and pay-per-click management. And that brings me to today.
1: Well, that's a very colorful and fascinating uh, kind of history how you got to today. I'm, I'm glad I asked you that question. And I think you're the second guest in a row here. We have one last week who started off as an attorney but ended up in business uh, and doing something a bit, maybe a bit more exciting. So, you know, in looking at your past, you seem to have a track record of starting some new companies or getting involved in new companies and really being able to grow them. So, how have you been able to do that?
2: Well, I think the entrepreneurial spirit probably started when I was in fourth grade and I was bringing down kosher chewing gum to Miami Beach and. There were no kosher, uh, uh, what do you call it, candy stores down there. So I think the first thing was finding a market that needed something that wasn't getting serviced well. And so when I offered the, started the magazine business, it was the beginning of the web, so we were one of the few companies that actually had a functioning e-catalog to sell, even though the delivery was by print, the acquisition of the customer was through the web. And so each of the things that... I've been getting involved with business-wise has started with identifying a market that was underserved and that we could reach, and so I found that to be kind of the first thing. Um, have you found that to be something in in your business as well?
1: Yeah, I think we can really dive into markets that really need that specialized area or being underserviced as you said i mean you gave a fantastic example kosher chewing gum in florida on the beach i I mean that was a very specific market was that very profitable, or was that just sort of a kid's flip? Well,
2: I guess for a fourth grader, it was just pretty profitable, right. and it definitely solidified my relationship with my aunt, who lived a block away from the candy store and would send me packages every once in a while. So. Yeah, yeah. And she's 100 years old and still going strong, though. I haven't sent it to the store in many years.
1: <laughs> well, I think uh, most entrepreneurs have these stories in the beginning of their lives of finding some way to... To make and, 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 you know, for me, it wasn't even about making the money. So I, it wasn't that I w- wanted this pile of cash or I wanted to go buy a toy. I wanted that interaction to do something, to go and sell something or build something. You know, I, I had the lemonade stands. That was a pretty big one I did on a regular basis. And when the schools would have their little contests with the magazine drives or whatever they were selling, I, for whatever reason, I always wanted to be the one who won that. Uh, you know, so it's an intre- interesting dynamic for entrepreneurs.
2: You raise a really good point because what you're describing is something that came from the inside. Whether you made the sale or not, that was how the world at large would maybe apply a measure of success for you, but you knew on your own if you were successful, and the money was just an indicator, and I find, considering that you're in the human resources area, that when I think about the people that work with me, they don't look to me to be validated. They look to the work itself to validate their performance.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a great point. So as you grew these different companies, you know what position in your organization was the most critical or, or maybe the hardest to really fill?
2: I think the answer for that is the person, if it wasn't me, the one who was uh, because in like my magazine business, for example, a lot of that was, uh, success came from corporate clients, not the one-off people that were just finding the website online and price comparing, but more working with companies like Nike or Mattel or Creative Artists where you develop a relationship with your, somebody who interfaces for the client. So one of the hardest things to find was somebody that was able to carry that conversation beyond me and the person so it would they'd become an extension of the company and and continue kind of a corporate relationship so that person had to be responsible they had to remember uh who were the uh different people at each of the companies know a little bit about their habits something personal to keep the com- to keep the relationship more than just official business and so finding somebody that could uh socialize in a sense and yet have business professionalism was challenging
1: so is that like a business development person
2: Something along that nature. We didn't have, you know, defined, uh, what do you call it, the job descriptions for that person in terms of a title, but it was more about these are things that you need to be doing. And in some sense it's business development. Other people might call it an account representative. Mm -hmm. Other people might just call them salespeople. But it was just finding somebody that would have the right disposition to uh, um, be able to handle phone calls that could go right or left depending on the day. Because certainly, uh, if an assistant in a corporation calls up and says, "Hey, Variety didn't show up today," that can be kind of a stressful conversation. When you know that assistant's boss is screaming, "I didn't get my, uh, you know, my trade magazine today, and they need it," so.
1: Sure, and I think you, again, you've kind of given an answer that we've heard before, which is reassuring. I think to a lot of uh, business owners, entrepreneurs who might be listening, that business development person that those who are out there, as you said, extending your voice. When, so that you don't have to, to deal with those clients, uh, help things grow, help things continue smoothly down that path is a very, very critical role and can sometimes be a difficult one to fill to find that right person who can do those things in a way you're comfortable with, but also successfully and, and effectively.
2: I, I would even add one more point to that, which is that you have to think always that you're institutionalizing something that feels personal, and because... In the labor force, people tend to stay at a job for maybe two or three years. You have to always figure that that person who's been extending your voice may not be there a couple of years from now. And so therefore, you need to have good processes in place so that when the next person takes over, it's a very smooth transition for
3: the client.
1: So it was kind of adding those processes in there. Was that maybe a part of something you've always done or something you learned? I mean, a lot of times people kind of change as a leader as their organizations grow. So was that maybe something that was a learned skill?
2: It was definitely. What happened was when I took that job uh, in law school, I worked for a manufacturer who made clothing for Liz Claiborne and Jones, New York, and Carol Little. And I was going to work in his $100 million estate, but he said, before you do that, you need to learn my business. And he literally put me on a plane. I sat in a factory in Sri Lanka for two weeks came back to New York for two weeks, went back to Sri Lanka, and my job for the next year was to just think about how to improve efficiency into the business. And I ended up building a tracking system in FileMakers, like second version of their database, that uh, would enable employees in New York, Hong Kong, Italy, and Sri Lanka to track all the production of their clothing from the buyers in Italy and Hong Kong and follow everything all the way to the to the account executives in New York who were dealing with the uh, with the client with their own clients and customers. And so I just learned how to create, I guess, logistical efficiencies, and I was able to take that into the businesses that I started.
1: Well, being able to take two week trips to Sri Lanka uh, and, and have someone let you go and just think about how to improve efficiency sounds like a pretty great job to me. But do you think that was something? Did you learn maybe a bit of passion there? Does Kind of this question to a lot of our guests. You know, do you really think that loving what you do helps you drive success?
2: I'll tell you something that's crazy. This morning, my brother called me up, who just moved to Hollywood, Florida, and he met a guy on the weekend who said that his father used to berate him his whole life that he wasn't going to be a success, and he had just come back from Fiji and he's been friends with Zig Ziegler and Tony Robbins, who are the big gurus on what you're talking about, love what you do. Mm-hmm. And he said to my brother, the secret to success that those guys evangelize is if you love what you do, you're going to be a success. Mm-hmm. And it happened literally this morning. Wow. So that's uh, <laughs> you're right on track with what I think is the answer would be yes. If you're passionate about what you do and you like what you're doing, then I think it's it, you should be successful at what you do.
1: So do you think there's a specific skill or technique that really contributes to your role But maybe you really had to work on over time? I know we talked a little bit about putting those processes in place, but is there anything else that you really had to work on to, to develop within yourself?
2: Yes. The biggest challenge that I have is that I'm constantly being pulled from multiple directions. And I remember reading a few years ago that Peter Drucker, the management guru of the 20th century, used to walk in, even to Jack Welch, and he would say, tell me, what have you shelved recently in your business? And so, though I'm constantly tethered to many different initiatives, the big challenge is to turn things off and allow myself to have more time to spend with the employees, to be consistently aware of what's going on and, and give them presence so that they know that I'm interested in what they're doing. So it's not necessarily that I have to pat them on the back, but I have to be a little bit more present with them so that they feel that there's a connection between me and what they're doing.
1: That's a great point. So what are some of the things you do to to make your employees feel like you're more present and, and in tune with what's going on in their daily work?
2: A part of it is I just set reminders in my calendar to follow up on projects that they're working on so that I make sure, even if I don't see them, uh, because now we're testing the waters on, on remote um, a remote workplace, a virtual workplace, I guess you call it, and I set reminders to be in contact with them, either by phone or by email, to just follow up on projects and try to give them encouragement that things are going in the right direction and give them feedback on their projects so that I can give them ideas.
1: Well, that's a great, great uh, suggestion. You know, we use followup.cc, I think, is the website, and it- you can kind of put these little reminders directly in your emails that the other party doesn't have to see, but you get a reminder, and we use that at our office quite a bit, so I know I can follow up with someone, like you said, on a project, maybe to give them encouragement, maybe to enforce the deadline, and whatever it may be, but just that that follow-up, that timely follow-up when it's the right time to do it, not when you have time to do it, can make a huge difference really within the organization.
2: There's one other thing that I do is I try to take them out of the office, even if it's just to a movie or to go out to lunch, where it's just, even though we may talk business, we're changing the location of where we are, it just makes the relationship with my employees feel more wholesome, mm-hmm. if you will. And I know that I appreciate when I have the time to spend with them, and I get the feeling that they do as well.
1: Yeah. You know, as a CEO and a business owner, you mentioned uh, one particular uh, person in your life who really impacted you, but and maybe, this, maybe this will be the same answer or maybe it will be somebody new, but, you know, who really had the greatest impact onto your leadership development, and, and maybe you can kind of expand on why that is.
2: I think actually uh, it's something that you and I share. It's not necessarily one person, but we're lucky enough to have joined an organization. For me, it's since 1999, I believe I joined, uh, a company called ABL. And it enables me once a month to sit in a room with seasoned CEOs who have gone through dozens of scenarios that I live through weekly. And when I come into a meeting and I present challenges that I'm facing, they teach me. Uh, It's almost as if in business you want to look for a teacher-client when you're developing a new uh, model to sell. Here I get to be the teacher-client with 15 or 20 people monthly who give me advice and they give me books to read or they give me in-person advice on tactics to employ. And as opposed to having one person that's the guru, I get to synthesize uh, learning from each of the people that I'm meeting. So I actually found that to be more valuable than reading Swimming with the Sharks or one book that's teaching me a particular discipline.
1: Yeah, and I think it's really that taking that moment away from from your work, kind of the everyday stuff that you can really get caught up in, But to take that time, break away, go into a meeting where you can't be interrupted and think. And it's been amazing when I've been in you know those similar setting as you mentioned. Sometimes I walk out of there with my own idea. I mean people may give me these great ideas, but it doesn't fit. But they've challenged me in such a way that suddenly the answer appeared. And other times, like you said, they have already lived it. They've lived it a hundred times already. And they know exactly what to do and where to go and how to accomplish it. And that's just an overwhelming feeling when you can get that kind of advice and an input that really, really works.
2: So, Well, it's like baking a cake. You can learn what the ingredients are, and sometimes you have to bake the cake a little longer or a little shorter depending on how you like the consistency. So when, when I get advice from different people, it may not exactly require me to set it and forget it after 40 minutes, but maybe I'm gonna put a little bit more of this ingredient or that ingredient to personalize it for my situation. So I, I find that I'm I'm fortunate to have many advisors and not just one.
1: Was there anyone early on though that maybe had a uh, more of an acute impact on your on your development as a leader?
2: I think there was one rabbi that I met when I was about seventeen years old and I don't know why this story mattered to me, but for whatever reason he walked up to me one day in the middle of the services and he told me not to talk at a particular moment of uh, inside the service. And it shouldn't have meant anything, but it might have been a turning point in my teenage years where I just looked at him, and he was a very honest, high-integrity guy, and I looked at him, and and there was nothing I could say other than, you're right. Mm -hmm. And it made me kind of change, turn into an adult almost at that moment where I just started to be more serious and have integrity in my actions. And I know it's a strange story, but it was just, I, I think the small things really make the biggest impacts in life.
1: Yeah, sometimes it's that virtual slap across the face, right? You get just absolutely brought to attention what you're doing and that you realize what you, you need to make a change. Sometimes that can have a huge impact. Correct. Even if it's just the simplest thing. certainly have recommended to me over the years quite a few good books. So I'm wondering, what are you reading right now?
2: I'm reading a book that has nothing to do with business, but it's probably the best book I own. It's called The Quest for Authenticity, and it's about a rabbi in the 1800s who started a sect of Jews that lasted for two generations, but he revolutionized the world of Jewry in Eastern Europe. And the whole perspective of his being, he was a businessman, and he got thrust into a leadership role where he wasn't looking for it necessarily but he was uh... not preaching but he was representing this idea that you have to be authentic to your true self and you shouldn't be um motivated by externalities. You have to start from the inside. It's like we talked about when you would sell things in the lemonade. The money was an externality. The, the success of how you ran your business is what motivated you. Mm-hmm. He was one rabbi against many, many other people who were against him, and yet he was able to create a revolution inside Jewish thinking. And I've been able to kind of adapt that to how I not just run my business but try to be involved in communal projects, and try to uh, be a good family man just big picture am i doing things the way i should be doing them
1: well i mean the idea of being authentic is a huge one and i mean think of the people who are maybe those kind of big rock stars of entrepreneurs and business owners and maybe people that we would like to be or become one day they have that trait in them and i often wonder were they always like that or do they have the sort of the luxury now to be more authentic you know, because you're, within your daily life, you're you're working with all these different people, and you know, people want to be liked, they want to be accepted, they want to be successful, they want to be appreciated, and yet that can sometimes really interfere, really interfere with that idea of being yourself and being authentic, especially if you're modifying your behavior to sort of get some of those other short-term rewards. So, you bring up a, a great point. Uh, you probably. Don't, don't need to have a rabbi to appreciate the book. It sounds very, very interesting.
2: Well, King Solomon wrote, I think, uh, 3,000 years ago, something to that nature. And I think Ecclesiastes, he wrote uh, back then that uh, uh, a good name is better than the best oil. So <laughs> your integrity, your ethics, your, your code of morality is worth much more than any money you might ever amass.
1: What advice might you have for our listeners who are looking to develop the talent that they have currently, and, and really, you know, how do they kind of get the best out of each person? And we talked a little bit about some of the things that you do about being present and having opportunities to, to be one-on-one with your, with your employees, but are there other things that you think to do to really develop talent?
2: So one of the things that I have found is that if my employees are part of the hiring process and they take ownership of the people that come on board and they get a little bit of management responsibility, they themselves become a force to reckon with and help the people who are getting onboarded to do a better job and that to me is a really big value because it's now the entire company taking a role in making sure that anybody who comes in is getting treated first of all hopefully with the same respect that they've been getting but at the same sense getting a sense of motivation to contribute to the whole and especially now where you have more and more people doing remote working and you have that lack of water cooler existence, how do you create an environment where people feel that the sum of the whole is greater than the parts?
1: Well, that's an interesting point, point. that really gets into you know connection with the company, how do you feel close. But that also can be a challenge on the creative end as well. Do you find that you have to kind of use some different types of strategies to brainstorm effectively within your companies?
2: Yes, it's very hard now with the remote environment to figure out ways to stay more present. I almost was to the point of thinking to install second monitors for each of the employees so that if we want to have, whether it's a Skype chat or even a phone call, they can instantly move stuff over to a shared screen and we can have kind of a dialogue that's as close to in-person as one could get.
1: Well, I can tell you do that now because we have already done that and that helped so much. Made sure everyone had the Skype camera, have that second monitor. It's a little bit of a challenge if they have a desktop, computer because you need to get a special deal but with the laptops it's so easy to just plug in that second monitor and really have that in there
2: correct so i think that's going to be a big step for us to do
1: yeah and it's it's a really inexpensive way too to, plus people like to have more work up on the screens we found i had people tell me they can't even think how they ever live with just one screen once they went to two you know <laughs> and, and 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 it's that uh, thought process that's kept me from ever going to three we kind of talked about the creative process and, and we're really about talent and how you've been able to do that, but what's been the biggest challenge for you in recruiting those people to be in your company?
2: Uh, we've gone the normal route of Craigslist and other uh, uh, or personal recommendations, and, and they have generally worked, though it takes a lot of time to find somebody. I think at the next stage of, of, of hiring... We're probably going to speak to someone who's already in that business of placing people because I think it will shortcut the process. The only Mm -hmm. question will be how I still make my employees part of that process. So They may be the ones talking with with, uh, companies like Decision Toolbox, for example, that help you to place employees. And, you know, they have all sorts of those guarantees and things like that if the personality doesn't fit or, or their work product isn't good. So it's more probable that I may look to an expert rather than trying to wing it, especially if we move into the more the business development side of the equation.
1: You bring up a good point, the decision toolbox, and that's a great recruiting firm. We've used them to kind of give you a pool of people. So have there been any, any other challenges that, you know, you've really faced and you had to overcome within your company to, to really make that growth happen?
2: Yeah, well, the biggest challenge we have is I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years on salespeople that made promises and didn't deliver. And I think that a lot of that is really on me because I've always attracted people that find value and merit in their work product, but the nature of a salesperson is, I think, very different. uh, Maybe one out of 20 are going to be that way. The rest of them seem to be habitually motivated by the money that they make. And so, therefore, if I'm not enforcing very tight deadlines and strict metrics and goals of performance, it's beyond my nature to want to be that way and to hold people so numerically accountable. And I have to either change myself or hire somebody that's going to manage a sales effort in that way.
1: Great. Well. You know, I really appreciate you being on the show. You've really been informative. And and the last question I have for you is how can people reach you if they're interested in learning more about L.A. Design or Magmal or anything else that you're working on?
2: They can put my name, Jason Cement, into Google, and I have many, many listings of companies that I am involved with. Uh, L.A. Design is spelled with a Z, so it's L-A-D-E-Z-I-G-N.com, and uh, I'm very reachable. Fortunately, I own an SEO company, so it's easy to get placed for uh, <laughs> rankings.
1: Right. All right, Jason, thank you very, very much for being a part of the Talent Talk radio show. Up next, Steve Goldberg will be on the show after this quick commercial break. Thank you.
0: And the show you're listening to today, Talent Talk Radio, is brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping you with people-related decisions by providing access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, a lot more. They've been recently named uh, or added to the Inc. 5000 list of fastest-growing privately owned companies, as well as being recognized by the Orange County Business Journal is one of the best places to work right here in Orange County. To learn more about People G2, please visit us online at www.peopleg2.com. That's peopleg2.com. Or you can follow us on Facebook or sign up and become part of our Twitter community at People G2. Lots of ways to connect with the talented folks at People G2. And now back to Chris Dyer and his next guest.
1: Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Just a quick reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast of this show or listen to past shows by visiting octalkradio.net and clicking on the Shows tab and clicking on, you guessed it, Talent Talk. In the short time the show has been on, we've amassed a huge following uh, on iTunes and live listeners, so we really appreciate the support. My next guest is Steve Goldberg. Don't forget to tweet your questions for Steve live right now by sending them to peopleg 2 hashtag talenttalk. Without further ado, Steve, welcome to the show.
4: Chris, hi. Thanks for having me. How are you today?
1: Doing great. So uh, tell us about yourself and your current employer, Chaucer Consulting.
4: So Chaucer uh, was founded 25 years ago in the UK. It's a global consulting firm that essentially helps clients mostly in the change management and business transformation arenas. Um, Chris, as you certainly know from running a business and introducing operational improvements uh, as needed, effective change management planning and, let's say, kind of end-to-end change management execution are really essential ingredients in, uh, in the success of those initiatives. So I'm the HR transformation and technology practice leader for Chaucer with a particular emphasis on change management.
1: And you've had quite a, an extensive bit of experience with some really high-end companies. Maybe you can kind of give us the ten-second highlight on on your path of how, you know your path to get to Chaucer.
4: That would be a tenth of a second per year. Yeah, I've been really fortunate to operate in the HR and HR solution space from very different vantage points: global practitioner, software executive, principal consultant, et cetera. So I'd say my number one highlight was spending four years in Zurich getting up HR systems and processes for an investment bank over there. Uh, and as you stated, spending a lot of time in other places like London and parts of Asia. I frankly had similar roles with banks in New York City, but I was never able to drive two hours and be in Milan for dinner when I worked on Wall Street. I could drive two hours and be in New Jersey, but uh, it's
1: not, <laughs> not a, quite, not quite the same. <laughs>
4: not quite the same. I, you know, my the other highlight would be working for Wayne Heizenga In terms of my top two or three highlights, the only guy, as far as I know, that's founded three Fortune 500 companies in the U.S. So I was VP of HR M&A for him, and my team built a really world-class HR M&A workforce integration center.
1: Those are some pretty good companies and some very good company that you were in, especially with uh, Wayne Heizenga and some of the other work you did uh, across, the, across the globe, it sounds like. So yes. you know, as you were in these different companies during kind of their periods of growth or, or execution of whatever plan they were putting in, were there certain positions or departments where you thought, you know, it was really critical for those areas to always be well-staffed or highly talented, uh and as you know kind of a sub question were those also the hardest ones to fill?
4: Mhm- yeah excellent, excellent Once you punch those questions, so you know, as you know, very large companies have many key, if not game changing roles right but but your question actually triggers another comment i'd like to sh- I'd like to make here, and that is that um I think it's a real source of competitive advantage for organizations to a know which roles are the most critical for their success, and B, make sure they have both internal and external feeder pools, successor pools for those roles. And really, once you've managed to build those feeder and successor pools, the issue of these roles being hard to fill is not such a daunting issue anymore. I don't know if that answers your question, but, you know, that's my thought process related to that.
1: I mean, our last guest, uh, Jason Cement, really talked about kind of that business development type people really being that secondary arm, and that was maybe more for an entrepreneurial role, and I guess the companies mm-hmm. you've worked in have been a more larger, more global, and so uh, certainly a different perspective. Yeah, You know so, what,
4: but but certainly uh, sourcing and recruiting and retaining top talent has a lot to do with sales and marketing So and, mm-hmm. and kind of being an entrepreneur in that sense, so I can relate.
1: Sure. So, you know, I want you to think back to your first job and, and then maybe compare yourself to how you are now. You know, have you changed as a leader within these different organizations? And maybe you can kind of describe, you know, how you've changed and why you think that's important.
4: I'll take the second part of that. Well, one part of that maybe it was the middle part uh, <laughs> first, and that is have I changed as a leader? Uh, I, I think the kind of guiding principles I've used since the 80s have basically been the same. The big difference is that when I used them early on in my career, I wasn't really sure if they would work. They just seemed to be the right principles to adhere to. (laughs) But over the years, I've kind of validated that indeed they were. And so I was uh, ahead of the curve, and and, uh, I guess it was some smarts and a lot of luck. So, you know, I, I've had line manager, people management, responsibility. When it, when I've had that, it was almost always with fairly large and successful companies. But in these positions, I guess my my five principles, I think it's five. I'm going to just count them out here. So one would be instilling an ownership mentality in team culture. I know your first guest talked about ownership. Mm-hmm. Uh, second would be having stretch roles. I know that stretch goals is a common phrase, I use the phrase stretch role. So allow people to grow into their roles if they show, show signs that they can. Another principle would be, would be being a fearless advocate for your team, even if it uh, exposes you to some personal risk with senior management. Celebrating successes certainly is something that most uh, people are attuned to. And and being genuine. Um, I, I think I had no choice but to, but to be really genuine when I was a, a senior manager in my 20s uh, because I didn't know any better. Some right. people were exposed to my weird sense of humor and some of my uh, foibles and so forth. But uh, but you know what? They respected me for being myself, and I've tried to carry
1: that with me. Yeah, we, we just talked in the first half of the show about being authentic, and I think that's pretty synonymous with being genuine. I mean, that's a, it's a great yes. trait for people to have and to really exude, especially in a leadership uh, role, that people feel like you really are being who you are, and not uh, someone that the company wants you to be or someone that you think you should be for them, but really just being yourself. Um, Correct. uh, It's a huge thing.
4: Not every organization will uh, provide that sort of you know, culture and environment to, uh, to bring that out. But people like you and I and your, and your first guest uh, probably would be uh, more comfortable in, in the environments that do bring that out.
1: Mm-hmm. Being the, the seasoned executive that you are, who do you think has had the greatest impact on your leadership development?
4: Well, two words here. It's actually a person's name. The person is Ed Weinmayer. His last name is spelled W E I. H-E-N-M-E-Y-E-R So Ed's been retired for a while Um, He was global head of HR at major organizations And actually my boss at two of the investment banks that I worked at in the 80s Kidder, Peabody, and Solomon Brothers So uh, really a fascinating guy with a fascinating career He was a former captain of the Princeton football team Former Vietnam fighter pilot that survived being shot down, etc. Uh, interestingly his son eric spelled e-r-i-k is actually more well known because he was the first totally blind person to climb mount everest and he's now done it multiple times wow. so it's had the greatest impact on my leadership development frankly because he gave me a, a a big leadership job at a relatively young age when i had no prior leadership experience and and i think giving me that type of opportunity which you know certainly had some risk for him and the company no doubt and how it it really made me want to plow through walls to deliver for them. It made me want to give others this, that same type of opportunity. Consequently, I, I think I've built up at least a small handful of personal wall plowers versus wall flowers uh, over
1: the years. He sounds like a very remarkable person and sounds like maybe he passed something on to his son as well. I mean, climbing Mount Everest yes. is uh, Absolutely. the first one completely blind you. that. That's remarkable. Yeah.
4: Yeah, Eric, Eric, the son, was also the first uh, state champion as a wrestler and the only uh, blind person competing in his state. So hmm. an incredible family, and people can look him up on the web.
1: So you've had some great influences and mentors. Do you think there's a specific skill or technique that really contributes to your success as a leader that maybe you've had to kind of work on over time that wasn't natural for you?
4: Now, off the top of my head, it's it's probably the ability to find a common agenda in politically charged or highly competitive corporate environments and situations, certainly working in four different investment banks, uh, in H.R., uh, which tends uh, to be the area that is viewed as a cost center and not having a lot of leverage, but still investment banks tend to be kind of high flyers, even if even if you're in a cost center. And just trying to find that common agenda in those sort of environments with people that are not necessarily uh, supporters or uh, on the same page. And obviously it involves knowing what the other person's agenda is beyond just wanting to accelerate their own career and, and perhaps compensation progress. Um, so I would say that you know, just being able to read uh, uh, another person's kind of agenda uh, beyond the obvious was definitely something I had to work on because you're just not going to get a collaborative sort of effort uh, and have a kind of a straight line path to achieving what you want, in that organization unless you could forge a lot of common agendas.
1: Well, that's some good advice, and I'm I'm guessing a lot of people listening right now, or maybe listening again on the podcast, you might have the same question that popped in my head is, how do you do that? H- how do you figure out what that real agenda is so that you can be aligned in finding those similar agendas? Well,
4: good question. So it's not the same kind of formula applied over and over, because uh, every environment has its own kind of unique uniqueness to it. You know, it starts with due diligence and asking around among your support base, let's say, and colleagues maybe in your own department that you're friendly with, tell me about some history here, what have have been some of the successes and non-successes and to the extent there have been some issues here and some fallout from those issues. Uh, Give give me some background on that. And so, you know, you kind of start within your small circle and finding out, uh, you know, the individuals you're trying to build that common agenda with, what's their history in the organization. And then, you know, you start obviously uh, with those individuals and, and of course, not be confrontational and try to establish rapport and don't rush it because they may per- be perceiving you as, as someone that uh, is a competitor or a non-supporter or someone that's just going to, not make their life easier. So, again, I'm talking about politically charged environments. So start with a discovery and due diligence among your friends and supporters, and then establish rapport and go slowly and uh, and be honest and ask for honesty back.
1: So, I mean, to really maybe summarize that, I would be you know asking good questions and listening mm-hmm. and, and a bit of being diplomatic. sounds like that's a pretty good formula to maybe discovering the information that you need to be able to, kind of navigate that corporate landscape, which sometimes can be full of more landmines than anyone could ever discover.
4: Yeah, I remember one organization, I had um, a counterpart in the IT organization, I was in HR as always, and, uh, and he and I basically had a role that was defined very, very similarly. And and in a sense, we, we were... Competing for budget dollars that related to HR technology, um, competing for staff resources, and building building out our teams, and so that was that was a tough uh, tough sledding, you know, for a while until there was a company function and I saw him sitting at a piano and uh, without even saying anything, I just sat down on the bench next to him and the two of us started playing. So you've got to find a way to break the ice.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes that can be tough. That can be tough yes. not all of us not all of us can play piano so we have to exactly. find our ways <laughs> maybe you can tell me this is one of our favorite questions here to ask on the show to our guest what are you reading right now maybe you can tell us a little bit about the book or books that you might be uh, have your nose into
4: so uh, you know just thirty seconds of uh, context yeah I, I really go through um, periods where I'm into different genres as far as literature uh, I would say for 20 years. I was mostly into nonfiction, like biographies and business books. And this is not by design. Something catches my fancy in a bookstore or, or whatever, Amazon, and, and I get into a new category. So I'm now kind of uh, bimodal, uh, if that's the right word. I'm into two genres at the same time. So uh, I would say inspirational books, but also uh, ones that are nonfiction. So as an example, Michael J. Fox's Lucky Man. You know, when I... When I heard that he was coming back to TV, um, my wife told me years ago that uh, she read Lucky Man, uh, which was really his journey, you know, finding out he had uh, uh, Parkinson's and and how he dealt with that, and it's really a very, very inspirational book. I mean, he really considered himself lucky uh, in the final analysis, too to have that experience Mm -hmm. uh, and to go through that because it really brought a lot of meaning to his life and gave him a a platform to very positively and significantly impact a lot of other people um so nothing like that genre i'm also reading uh i would say books written by humorists so um i kind of switch back and forth i tend not to go cover to cover so the other book is by david S-E-D-A-R-I-S, uh, hopefully a lot of your listeners, uh, have enjoyed his stuff. He's, I would say he's one of the top five or ten humorists, uh, in the U.S. in terms of, uh, and a prolific writer. He's written about ten books. The current book I'm reading is, <laughs> all of his books are, have great titles. This one is Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim. And it's just basically, uh, kind of short essays uh, that typically cover the life and the people he's met and his family and it's just impossible to go a page without laughing out loud
1: (laughs) sometimes we all need that that little break from from reality and to have something funny uh, remind us that uh you know a lot of good stuff in life especially i think for people who are heavily involved in business who are maybe under a lot of pressure entrepreneurs business owners that Mm -hmm. that that break can, can really be good and uh, humor is a great very
4: way Very therapeutic. It.
1: Well, you mentioned a lot of very creative people in some of your re- responses here. How do you really handle the creative process, you know, with brainstorming effectively in teams or kind of getting other people to think creatively? Do you have some tips and suggestions on that?
4: Well, I'll just give you one. It's kind of foundational one, and I don't take any credit for inventing it. It's been around for a long time, and it's mostly... In the environment, in other words, get away from the office, get away from phones and mobile devices and computers, and create an environment where there's no bad ideas, uh, no no silly questions, and no distractions that that relate to work. And uh, if nothing percolates in the first few hours, so be it. If nothing percolates in the whole day, so be it. But uh, to me, that is... um, a you know a very reliable and proven formula for for getting ideas to uh, you know they use the, the phrase crowd sourcing now but sourcing has elements of that but you're still at your desk you're still going to be taking phone calls have your boss walk over to you et cetera while you're while you're responding to something in the social in even in the corporate social media mm-hmm. uh, environment so I just say get away from all that will increase the chances of. The most creative, the most creative ideas and suggestions.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people do sort of these events. They'll take the people away. They'll go to a location, or maybe just close them into a hotel room or a, you know a conference room type setting uh, yes. away from the regular uh, work and activities and, and things or distractions for that matter. And I've also found that having that location be something inspiring, uh, it seems to help me. You know, and not just going to a room, but going to a location where, and you can find inspiration, you find creativity, you see things, whether it's something naturally beautiful or uh, exotic or interesting or what have you. That can sometimes really start to to draw on my creative side.
4: I really like what you just said. I guess one question that it triggers with me is. Can something, an environment like that, I mean, if you're at the Grand Canyon or or wherever looking at the ocean, can't that in and of itself be distracting?
1: Yeah, I think the Grand Canyon might be too much, um, <laughs> you know, but maybe something slightly less, you know, you go to a nice garden, you go to the Rose Gardens at uh, USC, you go, yep. you know, somewhere where there's some beauty and some simplicity, but not so much. Like, you're right, Grand Canyon or some other major place that that becomes a destination instead of a distraction yeah good point yeah yeah you're you're right (laughs) so you you mentioned some of the principles early on uh, into your success but i I noticed some of those really kind of deal with getting a lot out of people but i'm wondering if you maybe have some other practical advice as opposed to principles you know on how listeners can really get the most out of the people who work for them do you have any suggestions there?
4: The principle about giving people a sense that they are part owners of the business. And even if it's a large company or a department or a team within a large company or a small company, um, well, I think once people have that sense of ownership, even though for me it's kind of a fundamental principle, the advice is to figure out how to give them that. So um, part of that has to do with the other <laughs> the other principle that I... Uh, I espoused before, and that's, um, you know, stretch roles. If you if you invest, when you invest in people, and they know you're taking a little bit of risk and making that sort of investment, and it's not just a financial investment, it's maybe it's some personal uh, risk that you're going to incur as their manager. Because you know, you know they have eighty percent of what it takes to do the job, but they 're going to have to do some on the job learning and development usually that comes back in very positive ways, so the principles that I espoused before i think uh kind of the advice is kind of the same you know anybody and and i 've managed departments that you know for example a payroll department with junior mid-level and senior payroll clerks and the junior payroll clerks you might ask well how, how are they going to feel like an owner of the business they're seeing what people make in an investment bank and uh they're you know their eyes uh graze over uh, there are ways to make people like that feel like their owner of the, you know they're a part owner of that department and the success of the department is totally dependent on them and everybody else mm-hmm. um, there are ways to do that and i'm sure people can infer what some of those ways might be i don't think we have enough time for me to spell out all the specifics right now
1: Yeah, and and, you know, one of the other things that we typically touch on in this show is a level of passion, and I'm not sure if any of the things that you've identified would would fall in that category, so maybe you feel this way, or maybe you you don't, it'd be great to hear your your perspective. Do you think that loving what you do really helps you drive your success?
4: Well, in a word, yes, or in two words, yes, absolutely, but, (laughs) you know, I'll just distinguish sustainable success versus, let's say, flash-in-the-pan success, which is mostly based on luck. You know, there were people and companies that I knew uh, at the beginning of the dot-com boom that were just, you know, assembling smart people in a room and trying to get the company uh, built up with revenue or without revenue, but just have the capability to deliver product and bring a product to market and, and kind of sell the company as quickly as possible. So some of those people had success, but I think their passion was wrapped up around, uh, you know, kind of cashing out, to be quite frank about it, And hopefully they use their money to uh, go get some (laughs) self-development themselves afterwards because you're not going to get that lucky every time and be in the right place. So sustainable success, I definitely think you have to wake up and go to sleep at night loving loving what you do Mm because you're going to be spending most of your time doing it.
1: Well, Steve, you've certainly given us some very powerful things to think about today uh, with the advice and experience that you've had. The last question I have for you is, if people are interested in learning more about you or your company, how do they find you?
4: So I'll give you my business and, uh, and my personal email. Uh, the business email is steve, S-T-E-V-E, dot Goldberg, gold, like the color B-E-R-G, at chaucer.com, C-H-A-U-C-E-R. And my personal is basically my, uh, my own firm that I uh, have had, you know, one person consulting firm, and it's SBG Consulting, LLC. At gmail.com.
1: Well, great. Steve, thank you so much for being my guest today. That's I really a,
4: enjoyed it, Chris. Thanks a lot, and, and it's a great show.
1: Thank you. So that's about all the time we have today. Thank you again to my uh, special guests, Jason Cement and Steve Goldberg. Tune in next week at the same time, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, for Talent Talk, brought to you by People G 2 Next week we will hear... Angel Investor All-Star Dave Burkus on the show, as well as healthcare expert Gary Goltz, share their thoughts on talent and much more. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today.
0: You've been listening to Talent Talk only on OC